One really cool thing about this film is if you wear headphones, you'll have a way more spatial experience. So we recommend it. The name of the movie is 32 Sounds. And in 32 Sounds, director Sam Green listens. He listens to the last male bird of a dying species chirp for a mate that will never arrive. He listens to a man who can almost hear the voices of dead lovers and friends. He listens to a musician who burned a piano in her youth for art and now records underwater sounds. And he spends a day with a Foley artist who manipulates a chamois to mimic the sounds of fighting, feasting, and one more F word. On this episode, we interview director Sam Green about his movie 32 Sounds, and we're joined by a Foley artist, the Foley artist that Sam interviews in the movie. Her name is Joanna Fang. She's worked on The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the 2022 version, Clifford the Big Red Dog, In the Heights, and many other films, and she just brings a terrific insight to Foley and to sound. So stay tuned. Sam Green and Joanna Fang are up next. This is The Drunk Projectionist. I'm Todd Melby. My name is Sam Green, and I'm a documentary filmmaker. And for the purposes, I think, of this podcast, I made a film called 32 Sounds. Hi, and I'm Joanna Fang. I'm one of the subjects in 32 Sounds. I am a Foley artist and sound designer. I currently uh, work for Sony PlayStation as their senior Foley artist. Sam, let's start by having you tell us about 32 Sounds. Yeah, 32 Sounds is, <clears throat> I mentioned a documentary about sound um, and sort of a wide ranging, seemingly meandering film that uses, is built around 32 recordings of things. It's loose, a loose structure. And in that it's sort of an inquiry about sound that in my mind, uses sound to get to bigger ideas, ideas about time and time passing and ephemerality. And sound is actually super fascinating. The more you think about it, I've, in my experience, the more you think about it, the richer it can be. And it's sort of a way to understand how we experience the world. And so the film uses sound to try to get at some of that. And I, I had always known about Foley and been curious about Foley. I think everybody's sort of delighted by Foley in a certain sense, but I always really liked there's something, and Joanna touches on this in the film, there's something about the idea of how real sounds often don't sound like what we think they should sound like. And she uses the word cheats. Little devices can sound more real than the real thing. And I love that idea. That's a, a profound comment about sound and how we perceive sound and how we make meaning around sound sound is much more than just vibrations in our ears. It's also what we bring to it ourselves and our memories and our feelings. And so Joanna spoke wonderfully about that and all sorts of other things, but that's what I, I was trying to do with the film to use sound to get at other truths and ideas about being alive. So Joanna is one of many people that you feature in the movie. Yeah, there's a, there's a musician, uh, there's Joanna, there's a couple of other people. You, vi you visit the, the British library where they have, there's a library of sounds, and we hear this heartbreaking sound of a of a bird that's nearly extinct. And there's he's a male, and he's calling out for a female that doesn't exist. Tell us about that experience. I, early on, I had heard about the British Library Sound Archive, which is this enormous collection in London of of, of recordings. And so I went, and it was so great, so fun. The British Library Sound Archive is one of the largest collections of audio recordings in the world. There are over 7 million items here. You know, I love research. And so at this British Library Sound Archive, there's all these um, curators and there's a curator of accents and dialects. There's a curator of radio. There's a curator of music. And these people, that's their sort of job within the library. And so I want that job. I know all these jobs. <laughs> I mean, the only job better than that is a Foley artist. But um, right, we'll, we'll get to you. We haven't forgotten about you, Joe. Yeah, the, uh, the <laughs> curator of natural sounds is this great woman who um, named Cheryl Tip, and she's really smart and smart about sound. And Cheryl Tip is the curator of natural sounds, meaning all the recordings of thunder, 
birds, frogs, cities. I asked her what the most sort of striking recording in her collection was, and she played this recording, the mating call of the Moho Bricatus, and it was this little bird. The Moho Bricatus was a little Hawaiian bird that was decimated by development in the last century. By the 1980s, there were only two of these birds left, a male and a female, so there was still hope. Then, in 1982, a hurricane struck and killed the female. So now there was only one bird left, the male. And the breeding season starts to kick in and he starts to sing, thinking, oh, I'll just attract my mate again. But of course, she's no longer there, but he doesn't know this, so he just keeps singing and singing and singing. There's like, thunder in the background, some falling rain. I mean, it's the most poetic recording, the most sad recording, you know, <laughs> you could ever have. One of these sounds where if you didn't know anything about it, it would be a bird singing a song in a kind of, in the background is thunder and rain. And But once you know what it is, it becomes this very poignant sound. So that that's one of the sounds in the, in the film. What was your reaction the first time you heard that, knowing that this is the sound of an extinct bird? I, I think it was just, there's something, sound in general is a way to kind of hold on to time. More so, I think, in some odd, slippery way that's hard to put your finger on it, but more than uh, a picture. You know, if you have somebody you loved and they're gone and you have a picture of them, you look at it, it's, you know, it, it might bring them back to some extent. But if, if you hear a recording of their voice, they're sitting in the room with you. So there's a kind of weird power to sound. And so hearing that recording of this moment, you know, just sort of gave me chills. It's very profound recording there's a lot to it so yeah and it, and it of course reminds me of the man in your film who talked about ghost sounds the the guy yeah. with the headphones by the way there's lots of people with headphones in the movie <laughs> we see a lot we saw a lot we see lots of people listening to sounds yeah well it's always really interesting i love watching people listen because if you watch people listen their their mind their consciousness is somewhere else you know it's either inside or off somewhere that they're imagining and there's a kind of weird somewhat vacant but also like concentrating look of people listening i'm always intrigued by it so but the person you mentioned is a guy named fred moten who's a poet and a cultural critic and super smart and smart about music and sound and i did a long interview with him and the little section we used was him talking about all these sounds he has in his mind of people he's loved who are gone, the sounds of their voices and how we kind of can almost play them again. But it's not like a record or a tape mixtape where you can really play it. You can kind of imagine it. It's almost there, but it's not quite there. And it, it's sort of an odd and very sophisticated notion about sound, I thought. Yeah, I agree. I was always really touched by 
watching him listen and then have him talk about this ghost sound concept. And it made me think of my, my father that died a couple of decades ago and my friend Hilberto that died last year. And like when I talk about Hilberto, you know, I always kind of try to mimic his voice as if I can still hear it in my head. <laughs> and, and just watching him talk about his dead loved ones just kind of brought me back yeah. to my dead loved ones personally. I thought that was very powerful. The entire documentary is profoundly moving. I think um, I always found that most documentaries about sound or sound design or field recording, they always kind of go down too deeply into um, uh, expose on like the the mechanics of what we do, right? Especially as someone who works in the film industry and the video game industry, you know, most documentaries that seek to talk to Foley artists are mostly interested in overviews of like technical tradecraft and the dogmas. Whereas I felt like the entire documentary, um, especially as someone who is, you know, by craft required to fully invest themselves and embody sounds. Um, I found the entire documentary had a, had a more, um, expansive and emotionally literate understanding of what sound is as, on, on a baseline. Um, and I actually was very appreciative to have um, brought in a little bit of my understanding of sound from the Foley perspective, where we're basically working in a laboratory, right? Where we're bringing in objects, we're bringing things that we've collected, literal items we've collected out in the world, and then trying to recontextualize them in a controlled environment, in an environment where we have to play and perform and find extra details subtle textures and bring the richness out so you know i had i did an aes talk a few for the pacific northwest chapter a few uh a few weeks ago aes is audio engineer society so imagine if you will entire trade organization of uh, audio engineering folks and it was fascinating because um you know at some point when i was writing my presentation I, I had, I, st I wrote my presentation with the, with the byline, reality is boring. And basically <laughs> the idea that like, there's so many things we think sound a certain way, but when we actually put it in front of a microphone, they lack the immediate emotional uh, reaction that we might've experienced seeing it out in the wild, especially it's true on the Foley stage where something might sound good when you're experiencing it or where you're out in the field. But as soon as we snip it off and bring it back here, the magic is gone because the context is gone, right? And so, is, and what do you mean by that? Do you mean because we can't see it, or just because we imagine things more vibrant than they actually are in real life? I would say it's probably a little bit of both, right? Because I think so much of Sam's documentary actually does bring microphones out. We actually do hear, hear a lot of great field recordings, but the narrative context, the visual imagery, all these things kind of give back to the sound. All these extra pieces of of context that give it that emotional charge. You know, I think about that bird cry, that bird song. You know, I almost called it a bird cry. But when I hear that bird song, without the context, I think most people would just hear and be like, God, oh, it's a bird song. You know, and if you're a sound designer and you have to throw in bird songs into your film, you're like, okay, cool, copy paste, you know, you're done. But then to have the full context of what it is and what it means. And then when we listen to it one more time, knowing full well the implications of it, I, I think it's a little bit of both, right? Because some things are more vibrant because you're there and you feel it and the sound is is preceded with an event and uh and there's also the moment of reflection afterwards when you're feeling and experiencing something in the field but then when we take something that has no context and then we provide new context or we bring in the context that was missing we almost project um that missing value or we make that extra missing connection between how the sound exists and what the sound actually means to us as people. Do you think we could uh, talk about a particular sound and, and you could walk us through how you created it and what you wanted it to mean? Yeah, Sam, what was the, what was, so in the documentary, the prompt, Sam gave me a prompt and some footage yeah. and asked me to give it like my best impression. Yeah, which was just a tree falling in the woods. And you, I gave you this sort of shot we had, and there was kind of like some not great sound on it. You know, I don't even know if I gave you the sound, but it, and I think you, the great thing was, and this is just, I want to just take a small digression to say, I thought I knew a fair amount about Foley and I, I, I guess I sort of did, but there were so many things in our, in when we filmed that I learned that I just was, had never thought about. And one thing you said that really stuck with me, or one of the eight things you said that stuck with me is, um, is that almost all the sounds you make 
you could get in a library at this point. But when you do them, you know, whether it's footsteps or something else, you perform it, you do it with an intention that that infuses the sound with with a certain feeling and it's very rare I mean I don't know if you said this but I, I thought this it's probably very rare that anybody would say like oh those footsteps have a, a feeling of anxiety in them you know it, but it works on us in this sort of magic way and it's there and the difference between your footsteps for a specific scene where you've had an intention and you perform them with that and just some library recording is subtle but significant and so with the tree falling in the woods, I sort of said, can you make a sound of this? And you actually, almost like a method actor, came up with a whole emotional palette that you wanted that to have, which was amazing. And that is there. And the scene communicates that in a powerful way because you designed it, you thought of that, so. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, uh, you know, I always have to remind people that you know, what do I specifically bring to the table when it comes to, you know, uh, an image like that? And I always have to tell people, it's the fact that I am creating the sound bespoke for this moment, for an intention. And when I first saw this this beautiful drone shot of this, be this beautiful tall tree in the middle of this winter, you know, a winter landscape falling, you know, I couldn't help but feel that there was a tremendous lonesomeness uh in that shot and so i was like okay this is where we have to go with it right and so um so so you were already thinking lonesome yeah yeah i think foley artists you know after a certain point uh you, you watch a scene and even if there's something really exotic like a dragon heart being eaten or uh or like monster footsteps as they run up like a, a wall made of magical glass like it doesn't matter like it, no matter how fantastic the 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 concept um I think most Foley artists, once they get the understanding of what what it should sound like in their head, the next question is how do we perform it and continue to give it that life, you know? Um, and so when I saw it, I thought lonely, I thought icy, frigid, um, I had all these things uh, in mind. And I especially felt like there is um, something to be said about like the groan of the tree as it comes down, almost like a vocalization. Um, so when it came time to record the sounds for it obviously i went for i got my leaves and i got my magnetic tape which i used to sway the the actual foliage on the tree you know we hear the sound the cracking of you know wood shims against a wood pallet to try to get the sound of the fibrousness as it starts cracking down like scoring it almost like painting you know stroke by stroke uh but every single sound has intention right so uh finally after all that and obviously we had to get the huge hit of the log itself landing on on a dirt floor and so we did that right here on our foley stage the last sound really was to try to sneak in this creaking this groaning um and it's one of those things where uh you know i feel like if i you know if you watch it knowing what i used it, it can kind of give away the secret right but um i have a lot of props that creak and groan i have this beautiful wood frame that has tight ropes around it and some dowels. And the result is that it puts so much pressure on the dowel that it, it just goes, it has this, uh, excuse me, if you will, I, I can record it later, but it has this like sound to it. And I also took a chair and I, I found an exact angle on our wood floor surface here that when you pull back on it, it actually makes like a tone. It makes like a, almost like a screech or a scream. And so, uh working with my foley mixer we like played around with that and like pitch shifted down a little bit and then like i pulled in try to really get as many like notes out of it and so when all these things play back together they're almost like all these different notes in a measure of music right and so we start off with the scoring of it as like it starts subtle little creeps and clicks and and whispers and then finally by the time we get to the apex of it it's very loud there's a there's a very loud almost like a scream and then before it hits the floor, a hushed, hushed silence, and then a hit. It's not just the notes I'm playing; it's the notes. It's the it's the notes we're not playing. It's the it's the beats that we give so that there's more of a, an impact on the listener. So it. it in this case, what were the notes that you weren't playing? 
the notes I weren't playing were mostly choosing when to let silence speak. You know what I mean? So, for example, the beginning, we could have started the beginning of the shot with lots and lots of foliage. We could have started with, uh, you know, like a, we could have, I was almost considering adding a vocalization of like a lonely wind sound, you know, just blowing into the mic coolly and casually. But we realized that it's, it, you know, the, like the sound of the cold is really the sound of silence, like nothing's moving, right? So we decided, okay, let's start in silence. And um, so we started by having it gradually come in and we tried to give that contour of all these Foley sounds a performance so that way it reaches a dynamic peak, like a very strong crescendo, nothing, and then a very loud, almost like a fortissimo, like landing. You know, I like to use musical terms because I, I studied classical music for most of my life. Um, but um, obviously when I transitioned to Foley, uh, I started taking some of those ideas and language and reapply it to to here on the stage. But um, in a situation like that, you know, with the prompt being, um, you know, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, did it fall? Did, does it make a sound? And, you know, there's obviously a forensic answer to that. There's a scientifically accurate answer to that. And then there's the answer where it's deeply anthropomorphized right there's the answer where it's deeply very much a matter of like uh we are here in this world with this thing we are witnessing it we are projecting into it and as a foley artist my job is to give this tree a voice so that what i think the audience wants to project onto it matches what we hear in it so we can meet together at the apex of that so yeah and i think in the movie you mentioned use the the example of a dog as well, I think I think you said I'm doing my best impersonation of a dog, or I'm doing my best impersonation of what a person thinks a dog sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> and for people who haven't seen the movie yet, um, you had little pieces of wood on your fingers, and you were kind of tapping, I believe, on a, on a wood surface, the sound of a dog walking or running down the stairs or something. I'm doing my best impersonation of a dog. Or more importantly, I'm doing my best impersonation of what a person thinks a dog should sound like. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 fascinating because um, sometimes when people try to edit in these sounds in a library, they'll go out and record an actual dog walking with a microphone and then like, chop it up and put it in. And they're like, hey, when I put it back in, it just doesn't quite feel right. I'm like, yeah, because the dog's got this like little swag to him. You know what I mean? He's got this little rhythm. And if we're working in film where there's like other edits and maybe different rhythms and like a narrative arc that we're putting on top of the dog, like we've, as far as the dog knows, the dog, dog performers are like, okay, I, if I walk this way away from this camera, I will get a treat, right? Or if I growl really loud and run really fast to a camera, I'll get a treat. So it's up to us as, as filmmakers and as storytellers to take that, film it, recontextualize it into this dog's trying to attack, you know, so-and-so character. And as a Foley artist, it's like, okay, cool. So then we're giving this poor puppy an intention and a performance that it probably was not aware of at the time of filming. And then when we try to put the sound effect in, if it's from a library, it's like that those sound of those feet were probably not recorded with any particular intention for narrative storytelling. Whereas a Foley artist, it's like, okay, we can watch the entire edit of the film. We could feel the story. We are human. We are going, we can imbue upon this dog what the director intends to use the dog's presence for, in this case, pushing a, a plot point forward or creating tension. And so when I'm doing a dog, you know, I'm looking at its shoulders, I'm looking at its body language and swagger. And sometimes I'm not even shooting exactly in sync with what where each individual foot down is. With every movie that has a dog in it that you work on or, or video game, you would record or create a new dog sound for that dog. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, we I got to work on Clifford the Big Red Dog, uh, the film adaptation of that beloved children's story. And it was so cute because we had to do a scene that was like almost full CG of like little baby Clifford, like young Clifford before he blows up, not even young, I guess, a, a, you know, before he blows up to be the eponymous big red dog. When he's tiny, he's like running through traffic. And we did so many takes and variations of that because we had to get the sense of the panic as this full CGI dog dips and dives through, you know, New York on a, on a very busy summer's day. Um, and we had to reshoot it because we were just trying to get that sense of that dog's panic and its pivots, its moves, its frightenedness. And then as we started seeing more and more CG coming in, starting to get some dog facial impressions, we're like, oh, yeah, this is way more intense than we thought it was going to be. 
I'd like to use in the podcast some examples of a lot of the sounds that you made that, that Sam showed you making. If someone's tumbling down a flight of stairs. There was a car door slide and chains and boxing gloves and hands inside the gloves with the, with the wood sticks. We just talked about that. And also like things you did with a wet, maybe a wet t-shirt. Yeah, whatever that was. Maybe you can kind of just walk us through those and I can say them again if you if you need me to. Sure. And the, you know, when we were filming, I showed Sam a bunch of the fun props we have on stage here. Some pretty, pretty, pretty like a average, standard average issue for a Foley stage. Um, we have everything from car doors. Uh, we have things like, you know, a very particular vintage of boxing gloves. Some of them were old school Everlast gloves have more of a thump and flip through them. And we use that quite a bit for body falls and punches. The newer boxing gloves don't do that? Yeah, they, they're made out of new, new material now. So a lot of the new newer boxing gloves, they care so much about so shock absorption um, and they use newer materials. So whereas the older boxing gloves, I've always found, they have a lot more density, a lot more mass. And frankly, I think they're made out of a different... See, here's the interesting thing about being a foley artist. You have to do some research to understand what, how things have changed in terms of materials. And um, like if I'm doing a period film, I obviously have to go find the exact correct. I want to start with knowing the exact correct prop. And if it doesn't quite uh, satisfy our, our oral fixation with it, then I'll start going into the margins and finding ways to cheat or add uh, enhancements to it. Sometimes even breaking the rules about what is or isn't being used obviously but yeah older boxing gloves tend to have more of a thump and they tend to have more mass to them the newer ones are made out of a lot more of a foam material shock absorp absorption material um, and they probably do a be even better job of of uh protecting your hands and you know not killing the person you're in a fist fight with but um older boxing gloves have a sound and so um obviously on our fully stage we have both you know for variety's sake um we also have things like you know, two or three different types of chairs and hundreds of different types of bottles, all sorts of things you'd expect from, uh, you know, we have to be prepared for every potential possibility. And if we don't have the right prop, and if the real thing doesn't even sound correct either, then we have to be able to either hop in the car, go to Goodwill and try a bunch of different things out and find what we need to bring it back, or conversely, you know, cheat it, right. And so sometimes if we're doing a, a sound that's very metallic, and we know that the real thing doesn't make enough jingle or jangle, then we will we will try our best to find the next closest genus of metal. I guess not even genus. I guess next uh, the, the most the most impressionistic to our expectations, and then start there instead of starting with reality and trying to force reality to sound, trying to force the real prop to sound uh, more than what it is capable of making. Um, so besides those props, you also said um, chamois, right? So my favorite my favorite prop. Uh, <laughs> The MVP, greatest of all time, Foley prop on any Foley stage is the chamois. And what is a chamois? Chamois is basically <laughs> like a large, a large piece of preserved she uh, uh, sheepskin, and uh, it's usually preserved in some sort of fish oil. Um, and so the, the the cool thing about the chamois is that because I think it's hydrophilic, it does a great job of getting water away from it. But after a while, also does a good job absorbing water. So you know, I would I would think that the first Foley artist who utilized the chamois probably had a summer job as a car washer because that's usually <laughs> where we encounter chamois are at the car wash. Um, and so uh, you know, we we use it because you can use it for so many different sounds. I've used it for gore. I've used it for the sound of blood droplets. I've used it for the sound of like disgusting fish being eaten or uh, meat being pounded away. It's doing it. Doing it. I've used it for doing <laughs> it, which is so funny. It's like the three Fs, you know, uh, it's, it's like- Fucking fighting something else. Fucking fighting and feasting. Yeah. Ah. Always... <laughs> so, I got two out of three. You did it too. <laughs> the sound of someone getting stabbed, you know? You the sound of someone bleeding out. People doing it. But it's like, it's these three, it, all these three sounds we can augment with the chamois. It's like the greatest magical ingredient on a Foley stage. 
but yeah it's just it makes all those gooey ploppity drippy squishy sounds and something something tells me you use that while working on the most recent version of the texas chainsaw massacre yes <laughs> i use we used it a lot uh amongst uh you know a nearly 150 dollar grocery bill for cantaloupes <laughs> grapefruits and um celery but yeah we we use so much chamois because it's just like it's like blood plus, you know, it's like we think of what is the sound of blood and what is the sound of pain? And we realize that most of the times when there's some sort of violence, we don't really hear any of that gushy, gory, textural stuff. But in a horror film, we want the audience to react. We almost want to give them the sense of, you know, misophonia, right? When uh, some people are don't like the sound of eating. They don't like the sound of the click and the slick and the goop of someone chewing. So, um, one thing we try to impress upon our listeners, especially when working in the genre of horror, is a sense of body horror from all the blood, right? We want you to feel like you could, you could reach out and touch the blood on screen, or you could feel the blood dropping against, or like splashing against walls. So working on a character like, you know, like a Leatherface, um, and with a weapon like the chainsaw, it's like, okay, you know, we're not just focused. We know that the chainsaw revs. And if you actually encountered Leatherface in the in the real world, if he existed, um, you probably wouldn't hear much besides screaming and chainsaw roaring. Like even if he was like taking down somebody. But in our cinematic world, where we're trying to put the fear in you, you can hear everything included in the chainsaw. You hear the you can hear things shaking. It's so loud. It shakes objects. And when it cuts through flesh, you could hear the grapefruits being torn apart and the chamois squeaking and spitting fluid everywhere you know when he takes someone's face off we could hear the peeling of an orange you know it's all so, in there so how was the fully work in the original uh you know it's interesting so so i usually when i work on a film that's a reboot or a sequel we we do try to go back and listen and watch some of the the touchstone moments you know texas chainsaw was interesting because i know that you know a lot of these early horror films they um they didn't have like, you know, the type of budget or even like sound aesthetic that we have nowadays with modern horror. I'd say movies like like all the Eli Roth gore films have uh, kind of pushed our idea of, of what we should hear or what we don't hear. Or I guess David Fincher, more specifically like Seven, in terms of what we hear, what we don't hear, among many, many others. But, uh, you know, some of these older, you know, 1970s, 1980s slasher films, they're, they're, they're done pretty quick and done pretty, were done pretty well at the time. But uh, I'm sure they didn't, I'm sure they used almost exactly the same techniques we use today. It's just a matter of a different choice of performance and accounting for a different, a more modern sensibility. You know, in our Texas Chainsaw movie, there's an entire sequence where Leatherface is coming in and everyone's got their phones out and they're, fill and they're on live stream. They're like, who is this clown coming in in this costume with this chainsaw? And then he starts killing everyone in the bus of influencers. Um, <laughs> I haven't no. seen it, and I love that scene. It's, let's it's, let's kill the influencers. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty strong social commentary, right? But um, but, you know, I, I think I think about it all the time because because you know we go back and watch old kung fu films, or or any just old, older films where the the sound technology was not where it is today, where we get everything at such a high resolution with such clean signal to noise. And also our audience expectations are so different now as to what is a good soundtrack. I don't think we ever go back and listen to Kung Fu movies and go, oh, the sound effect work was horrible. I think they're part of the pastiche of what we see. Mm. It's interesting to go back and actually be like, hey, you know, there was a legendary uh, Chinese Foley artist or uh, or a Taiwanese Foley artist, like, uh, like um, uh, uh, I think his name is Hong Dingyi. I've, I've talked to him in the past, but, you know, he was doing a lot of these, like these films and completely uncredited you know nowadays you'd be like oh it's very rudimentary but it's like at the time this was them putting the most talent and storytelling they had with the technology they had to help make the story better and so i do think about it i think about like chicago like i got to work on some cool stuff with like fossey verdon we had to recreate a, a dance sequence from cabaret uh it's fictionalized in this tv show fossey verdon on fx uh but they kind of recreate it in a more modern way and so we actually went back and listened to the original sequence in Cabaret that uh, it has Liza Minnelli singing and has Kitty Malone, the legendary Foley artist Kitty Malone, doing all the footsteps and dancing. And 
when it came down for us to do like our modern take of it, you know, it was it was pretty straightforward. It was like we're probably doing exactly what Kitty did, but it's with you know modern microphones and uh, we're look we're looking at shots that are tighter and closer than they were, higher fidelity. So we're we're looking to hear more detail in our fingers than what was plausible or what was feasible back then, technologically speaking. So um, that's a big part of it too. I was very struck by the fact that being it seemed to me that part of being a good Foley artist is having hoarder tendencies because like you're keeping like it's every like oh I might need this this side shoot perfect I'll need it you know it's just like an excuse to accumulate stuff which seems great like that's that's awesome you're doing it for work <laughs> yeah all about like, the work <laughs> I, I I love I I do love collecting things um <laughs> But I, I'm also pretty merciless sometimes when it comes to things that don't, uh, you know, what did my therapist say? If it no longer serves you, you know, you can Marie Kondo and chuck it out the door. But with uh, with Foley, it's it's getting tough sometimes to find the right props because things are changing. Manufacturing techniques are changing. Even here in San Diego, the, the prop selection out in the wild when we go on prop hunting is so different than the type of props I would find on the East Coast or, or in New York. Um, just different demographics and histories of the area. So it affects the props you can find and therefore it affects the sounds you can make. Wild that that history of people translates into uh, sounds. But no, absolutely. It's, it's weird because I, I, you know, my Foley stage is filled with a lot of different elements of my, of my past. You know, the first cell phone I ever used, I have as a Foley prop. It's sitting in a bin. Like back over there, like my Motorola Z9 that, you know, the same Motorola that I, I lost uh, at prom night because <laughs> I had my heart broken and I called my mom and then and like cried and begged for a ride home. And then in my rush to get in the car, I dropped it. And the next day, my mom and I had to drive all the way back to Universal Studios where we had prom and go to the lost and found and find my cell phone. Like, like these objects, which for me, they are loaded with maybe history and meaning and sentimentality, but to the audience, it gets recontextualized, right? So for them, they don't, they don't think about that. They're not getting, um, every time they hear the sound of the cell phone closing, they don't think it's, they don't, they don't associate it with it, with the context that I have about this object. So in a way, the Foley stage can act as a transformative place where we can take things and pull them outside of their intention or their history and you know almost in a kind of very recycling and green sort of way give them a new context give them new life so i have some things here that are kind of actually have bad memories you know what i mean i have some props here that are from bad memories i have suits i never want to wear again i have shoes that i hated all these things that just in my personal life i almost despised but in the context of making new sounds are the perfect tools to do so. So what question should I ask Sam next about, uh, about the movie? <laughs> Talk about the, I think the listening experience. And I know that there's several different ways to watch the film. There's several, it's an odd movie for the, about the past 10 years, I've been making these sort of live cinema pieces. So it's a film but I narrated in person and a band or musical group does a live soundtrack. So it only exists in a kind of performative sense. You can't watch it on Netflix or YouTube or Hulu. And I just, I, I sort of fell into this form accidentally and I, I really loved it. There's so much to it. And especially at a time when people are watching things in very distracted ways. I mean, I watch things and check my email or Facebook at the same time and making something that can only exist in a in a context where you have to go to a theater and turn off your phone and buy a ticket. There's something I think more meaningful about that. I like that form. So with this with 32 sounds, one of the ways we show it is traveling around. I made the film with a musician, J.D. Sampson, a great electronic musician and so we tour around and JD plays the score and I narrate and it's on the screen. But when I was making this film, I was like, how am I going to make a film about sound tour around to all sorts of different theaters, many of which have shitty sound systems and make something that is good and consistent. And also, as I got into binaural recording more, I realized you can't experience that with speak with movie theater speakers. So somebody said to me like i got an idea you're gonna hate it it's a terrible idea but what if you had headphones and everybody wore headphones 
And I thought, wow, that's actually a great idea. Because I'd seen a Broadway play once called The Encounter by somebody named Simon McBurney. And, and this play used a lot of binaural sound. And everybody in the audience wore headphones. They had headphones. And it was incredible. It was, I can't remember anything about the story, but I remember the effect where he was talking in your right ear and talking in your left ear. And it was so powerful, so profound. So anyway, we realized, oh, you know, okay, we could get FM transmitters. So we tour around with 500 sets of headphones and do shows that way. Um, I did a, a live cinema piece with about Buckminster Fuller with the Bandiola Tango. And we toured around a lot and did shows. And I just really love, musicians are super different from film people and they're fascinating, they're great to work with. So anyway, I like that. But then there's other sort of iterations of the film. And one of them is, you know, a, a kind of streaming version of it that you wear your own headphones at home. So it's- Yeah, and I, I, I watched it via yeah. streaming with the link you sent me with headphones. And I thought it was fantastic because with the headphones, I was able to get that left, right binaural yeah. experience. I do think there's something about being in a in a theater with with strangers and experiencing something in this sort of odd collective way that in my mind is is a stronger experience but i feel like it still works you know in sure the, sure the at home version we call it i'd say the at home version I, I mean in all three of these instances it so immediately provides that extra bit of um how do I put this? Experiential, like you, you, you complicate the audience's own understanding of how they want to listen to this film into just the various different ways that's presented. That I think is very um, evocative, right? Like you're you're demanding someone to, you know, you, they know they're going to go watch a documentary about sound, and already just from the outset, between the choices they could with how it's exhibited, have to make a distinct decision about what experience they want. And so you can't just sit back and stream this on Netflix. You can't just go back and, you know, like e even in the at-home version, it, it starts with a disclaimer saying that you should watch this with headphones on if you want to understand this movie. And so I think it's, it's one of the few things that I, you know, I got in arguments with professors in film school about how, for example, if we know a film is going to be shown mostly on iPhones and iPads, God. should we change our shot composition? Should we change how we highlight things? How, yeah, exactly. And one thing I, I very much put my foot down with was I asked that same professor, I said, how did you watch, what's your favorite movie? The professor said, uh, you know, um, Dr. Strangelove. And I told him, how did you watch it when you first watched it? And he had an aha moment. He said he watched it on VHS on his his little 10-inch TV as a child. And so I told him that like, you know, it is, it's, it's, it's up to the creators to choose their preferred format. Often we have to choose the format that we think is the most definitive or most uh, meaningful or expressive to the story that we've created. And then we have to put the onus on the audience to make their, they have to come and meet us and make the efforts to receive the film how we intended. Um, and some people would say that's like a little, a little bit um, elitist, but I would actually argue that it's the most basic bare bone demand. And especially when we start talking about films like this one, where, you know, it is a movie about sound. So what were you expecting to watch it on an iPhone while taking a shower? You know what I mean? Like, uh, so I, I love, I love the fact that every form of exhibition of this film, um, it forces your audience to have, uh, it doesn't even force them, but it actually gives them autonomy. They get to choose amongst the three. I don't even think you're like removing options for people to watch the mm -hmm. film. And I don't think the film's accessibility suffers for it for the most part, you know? I, 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 it was always interesting or a good challenge. And John, I'm sure you think about this to figure out how to get people to listen in a more engaged way. Because most of the time, I think also because sound design is so, amazing these days and so rich and it's sort of like top 40 radio pop now that's so produced it just washes over you it's so good even the shittiest hollywood movie has spent millions of dollars and there's great people doing the sound so you very rarely have to work so to try to figure out how to how to sort of shake the relationship and make people work a little and and um 
even those simple interventions of like close your eyes, which is kind of dorky. It's easy to do, but it it changes. It worked. How- it worked a lot. I thought I thought that was that was risky because I mean, no other movie I've ever seen before has asked me to close my eyes. But and- the one that I like the best is in the live version. The 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 sequence that's just dancing. At every show we've done, I never knew what people would do with this. Yeah. But I just say it's a five minute interlude. You can get up and move around if you want. And people get up and dance. And that's amazing because that changes the energy completely in the film. I mean, that's like an hour and 10 minutes in. At that point, people are sort of like starting to, and just having people get up and like it's a seventh inning stretch in a way. You know, people get up and move around. And then there's like a kind of giddy energy in the room that wasn't there at all. So that, way of like listening and having sound go in your body in a in a kind of way that changes your energy in a physical sense is radical. I mean, I I I think I that's an important turn in the movie for me. So um cinema is so focused on on images where we all talk about you know this great image that we've seen in whatever our favorite movie yeah. is and here you chose to make a movie about sound and not images. Yeah. How tough was that for you to do, just lead with sound and not images? It's hard because like there is this thing where images quickly overshadow sound or somehow they can, I think we naturally sort of like put sound in the back seat or kind of put it off to the side. And there's a way in which in that um, scene with uh, Cheryl Tip and the, the Moho Bricatus, I remember editing that many different ways, trying to get it so that people would listen to it, you know, like really give themselves to it. And, and there were certain ways like, oh, if you, I realized certain early on as I, as I recut the scene and recut the scene, at a certain point, if I showed her listening for a while, then you would listen, then it, it allowed people to, and so there's this odd way in which you sort of almost have to like, I feel like you got to trick people's eyes into, into kind of calming down or, or like, yo, just you chill for a minute and let the ears have some, you know, just like, it's this odd, almost kinesthetic choreography that you got to finesse. And it's tricky. I mean, Joanna, I'm sure knows this way more than me, but sound is mysterious. It's, uh, it works in like this very odd ways that it's hard to talk about and hard to prescribe you have to sort of like work with it in 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 almost magical ways i don't know you can get a little woo woo about this but i do think a lot of that's true yeah i remember when i was younger i had to do the clothing sounds for uh, a scene in this film and it's like the scene as it was presented was uh, a bunch of these older people this is this is like a movie about euthanasia um so it's these old folks who are coming into a hallway and they're walking towards to line up to start receiving their start receiving their treatments so they could die peacefully on their own terms and i remember this is when i was very young so this is when i was first a foley like acolyte so to speak a neophyte there we go um i did all the clothing movements for the characters and at the time i was like okay cool i nailed the sink each character is bang on and uh we're good and my my mentor at the time les bloom uh, who I owe a lot to, by the way. He's one of my. He's he's my. He was one of my mentors for for uh, almost, you know, for seven years. He's like fantastic full airs. Um, he listened to it and he's like, "You're not nailing it." I'm like, "Really?" I was like, "I thought my sync was so good." He's like, "It's not about the sync here. It's like there's sync and that's basic. You're hitting where all the notes should be, but you're but you're you're phrasing your your the vibe. It's just not there. I should be able to listen to this clothing and know that these people are, like." that they're about to go do this thing they're about to do. They're lining up to go die like that. There's a lot of power in that narrative device. So, and he grabbed the cloth from me. He's like, let me just show you how I would do it. Exact same piece of cloth, exact same shots, just two different performances. One done by somebody who at the time was like 23, you know, and was fairly new to professional high-end sound design and somebody who had 20 plus years of experience. Um, who who was very emotionally of us in the movie. And even though I could look at them on the waveform, even though I could see that they were pretty much very similar in terms of timing, you know, in terms of volume, that there was this significant difference in in what it could convey. And I knew it wasn't just me in my head associating values to it. You could literally hear it 
and I'm sure in a blind A/B test, people could tell which one was preferred. What did what did he do different? I think what it was is that he he managed to get like the sense of this heaviness, this drag to each character, almost like they don't want to go down this hallway. You know, it's not a scene where characters are very spry and on their on their feet. And so, even though I had nailed the sync on my performance of it, I didn't. It felt very flat and one dimensional because you know I was just trying to record the sound of clothing up going up and down in a scene instead of the sound of this weight on their shoulders the sound of this dragging this this push this pull this 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 long drawn out sadness and so it was one of those things where i uh you know like you like you were saying sam it's very easy to go ooh, ooh about this and then you listen back to the two files and then they sound virtually identical you know what i mean it's easy for for somebody to be like you know how many times you know they've done st studies where you know, if you're presented with a menu at a, at a restaurant and the wording on the dishes is very florid and like very well described and beautiful sounding, you're going to perceive the taste of the food differently than if you received a, a menu that just had the ingredients written out in very plain, simple English, uh, forensic English, you know. And so, um, you know, I understand that the psychology, that there's a psychology we place behind things and how they're presented. But in that one moment, I realized that um, there is a very distinct difference, especially when we push ourselves as performers to imbue that feeling into what we're doing. Uh, fully at its worst, we think we're doing it, but we're failing at it when it's listened back. You know, it, I, so you're supposed to be able to listen back to a scene with the dialogue muted and get a sense of where the emotional dynamicism is, who's got the pain, who's in charge of the scene, who's not. And then really great Foley, you're supposed to be able to listen back with the dialogue muted and you know exactly where the tension is, where the, where the drama is in the scene. Um, and so um, it's it's easy for when it comes to sound for us to listen to stuff and, uh, you know, I, how many times I've done microphone shootouts where someone's like, this is so much warmer, crunchier, more charming. They start We start anthrop anthrop uh, anthropomorphizing elements of, of technical elements of equipment or of uh, props that that may or may not exist. On the other hand, when it comes to Foley, where we actually are crafting and putting real human energy behind something and, and going for the sound of it and crafting with the sound of it, um, those are those moments where it's almost like alchemy. Like we could take something completely ordinary, and make it extraordinary. We could take something that, uh, something that used to have so much meaning of pain in somebody's life, something that you wouldn't even think twice about the sound of it, and then recontextualize it, reperform it, push it to its limits and get someone to feel something differently about it. So that's the magic of Foley for me. And you know, with your film, Sam, I think you had this interesting job where sound is almost always used as a bandage, a bandage in, in film, right? We replace lines that got messed up by uh, technical issues. We Foley details that we want the audience to pay attention to, or we're cheating uh, materials like in a film where all the guns are made of rubber on set. We have to make all the guns sound like they're real, like made of real metal. But in your film, we have to do the opposite, where we start with the already interesting, profound, emotionally moving sounds, and then we have to provide all the additional context, provide the audience moments to slow down and listen to it, provide audience moments to, to like I said, see the beginning, middle, and end of the sound that we're presenting. You know, when it comes to the shot that you made me do, you know, we don't just show them the sound of it as I've performed it, but we also show them it without any sound at all. Yeah. You know, and so it's like it's the reverse order where instead of using sound to try to cheat either a production issue or, you know, to fix something that was some sort of editorial or storytelling element that it was discovered later in post-production didn't work. Um, instead, you're having to have to choose carefully how to sequence your imagery yeah. to convey the maximum amount of emotional feeling from the sound. Yeah. It's funny because in the um, when Nels, the editor I was working with, cut the scene where you're actually foaling the, the he did this great thing where it's not it's not reality time at all. It's sort of like the you're making sound the trees falling like 19 different times at different speeds. And it's like this great explosion of reality and sort of blowing it up. But one thing I wanted to say is, and this goes to what you were saying, Joanna, I was so struck by when we filmed together that um, I, I left realizing like, wow, Foley is a combination of, of sound art, 
music, field recording, and dance. And the last part, the performance, like when you say in the film, you say, you know, with a chamois, you're saying you can make the sound of somebody bleeding out and you go like, like you make this great face, like you're, you're getting stabbed. You were just, you know, you're literally performing that. And I was so struck by it is dance. It's like, even when you were doing the steps, you know, it's like you're using your body like a dancer. It's awesome. And so those, those, there's very few things that combine different disciplines like that, like literally sound art. You're making that thing you made the Foley was sound art. You know, you could call it that or whatever, but, it, and it's also music. It's a little symphony and field recording. You probably know as much as any great field recording person, how to mic things. And then anyway, it's intriguing to me. Very intriguing. I love it. Yeah, it goes all the way back, you know, because we we know the word Foley is a is a proper noun, right? So Jack Foley, it's a, we call Foley Foley because of Jack Foley, you know, this uh, this kind of Renaissance man, multidisciplinary filmmaker who in the early days of sound cinema uh, led a lot of the, you know, performed sound design teams. The sound to sync is what they called it back then, where they would have to create sound effects with the orchestra in sync to the film as it was being uh, recorded, as the soundtrack is being recorded. So very old school. But you know, the reason why he got his job was because you know, I think it was at uh, Universal when they had to do sound films. They put out a call for anyone from with a radio background who had ever done radio sound effects. And so there's already a direct, you know, even if you strip away, you know, Jack Foley's contribution and even his name from it, uh, hitting things together and getting them to play as some sort of sound metaphor for a story that's being told that's existed since like the since the dawn of music right like i think of you know <laughs> in a really weird 2001 space odyssey way i think of like cavemen knocking woods and sticks to try to describe the sound of what they heard or saw when they went on the great hunt and, like, i'm glad you mentioned kubrick because i wanted to ask sam about uh the shining shot that's in his movie <laughs> oh yeah 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 that that in thinking about sound as a mysterious Force. that scene has always stuck with me it's such a there's something about that sound the big wheel danny danny sort of going through the hotel over the carpet and then the wood floor and the way it that sound spooks you out there's something about that sound that's like deeply unsettling and because when people talk about that scene they talk about the steady cam because they were able to follow yeah. follow danny but like i love the fact that, that, that i love the fact that you made me think about the sound of it yeah it's one of those sounds where um it, it feels so unnatural because how often do you hear a kid on 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 a uh you know a kitty bike like rolling on surfaces with no other sound right i think about the absence of other things I, we don't hear danny having fun we don't hear other kids laughing until the end of that shot you know what i mean like yeah. it's a shot that is absent of fun we most he doesn't even seem like he's he's on that bike and he doesn't even seem to be moving around to have fun it seems like he's almost just trying to explore this space or trying to get away from something get away from yeah. our viewing experience. So what it, for me, what scares me the most is when you where you hear this rolling, this loud, almost like overwhelming sound of this rolling on wood. And every time it cuts into carpet, it's so mechanical and jagged and sudden. It takes your breath away and then it comes back in and it just keeps doing that. It's a sound that people aren't used to hearing in that context. It's a, it's, it doesn't end. It's just almost like a plodding, like a, like yeah. a nonstop, a relentless sound. And the only times you have breaks from it, you just get used to its silence for a split second, and then it comes back. And so, yeah, it's the juxtaposition. You're right, and the contrast of those two. A hundred percent. So for me, but, I'm freaked out by that scene because there's nothing else. You know, you don't. I wonder if he filmed it first and then realized the sound could be good or if he knew the sound could be good and put the carpets you know sort of like design the scene sonically it's I, who knows 
I wouldn't put it past him. I mean, he was such yeah. a meticulous filmmaker. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there is a Foley artist, but yeah, whoever he or she is, or whoever they are, it could be a small team. You know, a lot of Kubrick's films, uh, they don't have credits on them. Um, and uh, it's, or at least for sound, um, especially back then where sound was seen as such a team sport that they just say like, ah, it's the RKO sound department. You know what I mean? Like they would, <laughs> they would even put like, you know, there was no O tier of sound back then, except right. they did what the director told them. So. <laughs> All right. I have a final question for, for both of you. Um, if you're able to listen to a sound while wearing headphones just before you die, what would you like to listen to? Wow. <laughs> That's a heavy question, dude. Now I'm going to cry. I know. I think I, I know what I'd want to hear. What was that? What would you want to hear? Sorry, I was like getting emotional just thinking about it. Yeah. Um, I'd like to hear my mother's voice one last time. Like she's not dead now, but like <laughs> what a powerful question. <laughs> I was not expecting to cry on a Tuesday lunch hour about this silly question. Um uh no, only because only because I think we're not afforded that often. We don't, you know, as they say when an inmate goes to death row, they get to choose what they eat last, what they say last, right? Yeah. But um, I think about COVID. I think about families who had the privilege of uh, of hearing their loved ones. Yeah. I almost said music at first, like you'd want something calming, like you want to listen to like, oh, I want to yeah. listen to Mozart's 30th again. Or like a song that you associate. But if you had to ask me to choose like any one sound, <laughs> I did not expect this. <laughs> I'm not expecting you to hit me with that question. <laughs> no, there's so many like light final questions you could ask. Like, uh... <laughs> I think I think I asked it because oh, that was the power that the film had on me. It yeah. made me think about a whole bunch of things, including that, and I couldn't find an answer for myself. So. <laughs> Sam, your turn to. Well, it's also a crazy question because I started to think like I probably thought too much about it because I'm like, well, if I was being run over by a car, how would I, you know, like what would I, could I, would I have to take a sec to request it and they'd put a Walkman on and then I'd be run over? Or, like I kind of ruined it, I think, by thinking too much about it. <laughs> yeah, the autonomy of the situation is right. it like. If I was being shot, you know, like. Yeah. Would it be too super loud? Could I hear anything? Right. Um, it, yeah. I do. This is not to answer the question, but I do think one of the one of the great sounds is um, the sound of water. And the woman in the film, Manea Lockwood, who's recorded the sound of rivers for fifty years and has made these records that are unbelievably exquisite listening experiences. You know, the, a sound map of the Danube River, and it's just water and all these amazing um uh like just tickles your ears it's so delicate it's so musical but she started recording rivers she re recorded rivers for over 50 years started recording rivers because she read a book about some um sort of like cultural tradition in maybe peru where when people were and this is probably true longer time ago when people were kind of touched or odd or having trouble they would take them to a river and just sit them down for a day and that would apparently be calming and soothing and there's just I mean she had all sorts of really interesting ideas about why the frequencies of a river are, are soothing for us that they're complex but they're 
they're sort of lulling, but they're engaging. And, you know, there's a lot to that. And it's just, I find it like almost endlessly pleasurable to listen to water, but I don't know. I mean, if I was being electrocuted, probably that wouldn't be the best thing. Or if I was being thrown off a building, how would I, you know, so it's hard to, hard to really think of all the scenarios. If I was being drawn and quartered, you know, would I really want to listen to rivers? So. Right. Like um, I think about sound bathing, you know, which is yeah. seemingly like a therapeutic thing that people can do. I know during the quarantine, uh, I, I had so many days end on end where I didn't even leave my apartment that uh, I started putting on, I started loading up sound libraries of nature just to play back on my speakers so that I didn't feel like I was in the same room tone environment for like days on end. Um, but it is interesting to be like, yeah, if you had, do we even have autonomy over the last sounds we hear prior to our own death? Or is it rather like in an, in an isolated situation, if you could choose to listen to any one sound before, before you go to the great unknown, what would it be, you know? if it's dialogue or music or a voice memo or a Zoom call or a chat, you know? Um, I mentioned in the film this essay by Walter Murch about sound, and he talks about sound being the first sense that develops. And he also says it's often the last that people, I mean, this is common that people are sort of like on their way out and they can still hear, but their eyes are closed. And it's interesting how sound is this like very close to our consciousness much more than seeing in a way mm. so it is the first and the last so says walter merch i'm not i'm not 100 percent sold on that but whatever it sounds good unless you spent your entire life listening to heavy heavy metal music it might, right. in which case it might not be the first thing you lose totally. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much to both of you oh it's a pleasure thank you todd thank you joanna of course. Thank you both. Bye. Bye. All right. Bye. See ya. Thanks a lot to Sam Green and Joanna Fang for joining us today. I super enjoyed it. Uh, they were terrific. If you want to find out more about uh, 32 Sounds, go to 32sounds.com. That's 32, the number 32, 32sounds.com for a list of where Sam will be presenting the film live, and you can listen on headphones during the entire screening of the film. So it's coming up at a couple of places in August, Martha's Vineyard Film Festival, August 10th, Edinburgh Film Festival, August 17th, and Film Festival I Can't Pronounce on August 20th through the 23rd, and then a couple of art centers uh, in Ohio in September and October at the Wexner Center on September 29th and the Cleveland Art Museum on October 1st. 32sounds.com. Thanks a lot. Um, by the way, before we let you go, please share this episode and any other episodes or perhaps the entire podcast with your friends. Uh, get the word out. And thanks so much. Bye-bye.